we might not be exactly where we want to be in our careers, you know, but our, our own peace of mind is, is better than doing stuff and working in toxic environments. You know, so we should keep on fighting, we should keep on struggling, but always put your peace of mind first, you know, because there's too many, I mean, we suffer, as black people, we suffer from mental health issues, we suffer from too many problems, man. Life is too hard. You are now listening to We Are Black Journal's podcast with Marcus Ryder. We have to guard against the illusion of progress because 25 years ago, everyone was saying things are progressing. And in some ways, things, there's absolutely no doubt things are progressing. But at the same time, in the 80s, you had um, things like Cheddar, which was a black film collective, and you had other black film collectives. Um, so if you actually look at film, in some ways, we didn't have mainstream cinema, so you didn't have your equivalent of an Amorous Sante, um, nor did you have your equivalent of a Steve McQueen, but you did have um, independent black film cooperatives being, being funded. So there, there's progress in some areas, no doubt. We don't have the equivalent of a black film, um, independent black film collective in the, in the same way that we had with regards to Chedo or with regards to, um, oh, I forget what they were called, Sankofa, I think it was. Um, so we should recognize that our situations are changing, but there's no unequivocal, but progress is not a linear line, you know, and we should be careful not to think that progress is, is just a linear line. Th- some things have improved, some things have gone backwards. Mm. Do you think that the narrative has changed and it's becoming, um, black stories are becoming more common compared to years ago when I guess the story, the black story was not the same back then where you had like, you know, thugs and, you know, they were kind of categorizing black people as hoodies, etc. Like we've kind of moved beyond that in, in the narrative. Um, do you think that this, the story has changed in a sense or? Not really. I mean, what you had, sorry to be so negative, but what you had is, if you look at Black Britain, you had a BBC One, no, so BBC Two, primetime, 30-minute current affairs programme that was being broadcast in primetime, covering the full range and gamut of the Black British experience. You have nothing even close to being similar to that right now, right? Not even close. And that was happening in the 90s. Now, at the same time, people would say, well, that's bad because it was ghettoizing a lot of black journalists. And what we have now is we have those black people in the mainstream. So that's why I don't want to say it was unequivocally better, but nor should we run into, you know, think that things are unequivocally better or worse, you know, now, you know, in terms of, um, uh, you know, so for example, I've done some research in children's programs, you know, and we say, oh, Things are really progressing. Um, you had Pipkins, which was a children's program, ITV in the 1970s, with uh, the main, it was a bunch of puppets with one presenter. That main presenter was black. You had Derek Griffiths, you had Florida Benjamin. So in children's programs, you had black representation. 
throughout, um, uh, you know, and you have black representation now as well. So there, there's definitely some progress, but we shouldn't pretend that in, even back in the 1970s, which I'd like to say was before I started work, right? So even back in the 1970s, there was black representation. What we don't have very, um, is that again, when I've been doing this, this research, what has been instrumental if you look at the 1970s is that you have Sesame Street in the US starting in 1970, right? And the opening scene of Sesame Street is a black girl um, being taken down the road and being introduced to this multicultural neighborhood by, by a black professional male teacher who then introduces this young black girl, her name is Sally, to his black wife. And it's representing a positive community, free of crime, that anybody would want to be part of. In the UK, 50 years later, finding a positive, forget role models, let's look at positive communities. So Sesame Street is the, is the epitome of a positive multicultural community, right? Being able to find a positive community that you'd want to be part of, that is free of crime, you know, um, that has aspirational black middle-class people in it, it's almost non-existent, still in Britain, right? What we have is we have individual, so if you think about the actual, we either have positive black individuals in drama who are divorced from their communities, you know, um, or people of color. So that would be the likes of Luther, for example, positive black guy, positive black representation, but completely divorced from any community. Or what you have is you um, have black communities which are problematic. You know, and so that's why, for example, the Sainsbury's advert back at Christmas was so revelatory and so, in many ways, revolutionary because it showed a black community, a black family, right, that was happy and they were happy without needing um, white involvement in the family. That's not to say that they'd be unhappy if there was white involvement. But the idea of a black community being positive and happy, right, um, and uh, being a place where I would want to be is still an absolute rarity. And so in terms of the narratives that we're telling about our communities, they've hardly shifted. What we've seen shifting is partially is the idea of individual people of color being shown in a positive light. Mm. It makes me want to ask you about the, the question of um, black trauma being such a big um, issue in media now and everyone keeps continuing to talk about it. And um, there's a lot of discussions um, amongst black journalists that are like, why do we keep pushing this black trauma narrative? We can talk about black, um, you know, black things in, in a different light, like things that are, you know, futuristic, happy things, positive things, you know, yeah. but it seems like we're stuck on this narrative of woe is me and they keep pushing to try and get black journalists to, 
to kind of um, push those narratives. Um, do you think that um, that's purpose then? It's, it's, pur it's purposeful because it centers whiteness, right? Because black joy, so it's really, it's, it's great. I saw the fact that there's a book coming out that's being edited by Charlie Brinkhurst Cuff and I think somebody else whose name escapes me about black joy. And that is absolutely brilliant. So I think that's what you're, the kind of thing that you're talking about. And that is great. We need to celebrate being happy, you know? Yeah. Um, but the reason why the trauma narrative works so much is because invariably it's not necessarily a trauma narrative. It is a racism narrative. And the racism narrative centers whiteness, right? And it centers whiteness because it's saying that the black experience and what matters to black people is what white people do to us. It's a bit like having your abusive partner saying, after you've broken up, saying, are they still talking about me? Do they, do they still talk about me? Yeah, I know I was a bad boyfriend, but are they still talking about me? So it's a bit like that, you know? Whereas somebody who, who's really moved on and has got past that, doesn't really want to talk about the abusive ex-boyfriend or girlfriend. You know, it doesn't want to talk about the abusive partner. They want to talk about joy. They want to talk about other things. And so often, and so it's about how do we create stories which may well include white people, right? Or may well in include other communities, but isn't about centering whiteness. It's about centering blackness and the black experience. And the trauma is not so much about trauma per se. It's, about, it's actually stories about racism and the racism narrative invariably centers whiteness. That, that's, that's really interesting. I didn't even think about it like that. Um, and I think that would be really good for people to hear. Um, um, <laughs> or depressing. <laughs> One of the two. Um, You've caught me when I'm tired, so I'm just chatting, you know, whatever. No, I, I like it. You've been really straightforward and I, I like it. Um, would you say that your black identity played a vital role in your career then? And yeah, I mean, your, your, your identity plays, it, you can't escape your, um, your identity, even if you want to, it's the way that people perceive you, just as um, uh, being, you know, being a black Londoner play was central in, in my career. And I didn't quite realise that when I was in London, because I'm surrounded by Londoners. But when I moved up to Scotland, the fact I was a Londoner was um, instrumental in my career. So sometimes you don't even realize it, but your identity and different parts of your identity will, will be significant at different points, depending on the situation that you find your, yourself in. Your, your identity is contextual. You know, so as I said, my identity as a Londoner, um, uh, and also your identity is not only contextual as to how it plays out, but it's contextual into, in the privileges and the disadvantages that it gives you. And so what I mean by that is that when I moved up to, it's no coincidence that there is no black Londoner in London who is executing um, current affairs, panorama type investigations and programs for the BBC. Nor would I have been given that opportunity 
if I'd stayed in London. So I moved up to, to Scotland. And at that point, my London identity, like the idea that I was coming from London and BBC London and the network background, endowed me with, with privilege. And I recognize that. And in some ways, you could even say that it, I wouldn't say trumped, but it enabled me to um, get an executive producer position, which I don't know if it would have been open to me if I'd been a black Scottish person, for example. You know, so I think not only is identity intersectional, but the different parts of your identity play out in different ways depending on the situations that you're in. And sometimes things that we can see as being disadvantages can actually give you privilege and vice versa, depending on the context. So you've, um, you are currently in Malaysia right now. And I did want to ask you, do you recommend working abroad for black journals to kind of like, like broaden their horizons, maybe um, broaden their perspective? Does it help your career with like moving abroad and stuff? We are international people. You know, my mother is Jamaican and what she recognizes that she is an international person, right? And I don't know whether it's your, I don't know how young you are. So I don't know if, whether it's your direct parents or your grandparents, but they wouldn't, but either your parents or your grandparents were not born in the UK, right? And so as such, the idea of us not being international people is very recent, you know, and uh, our parents and our grandparents recognize that we are international people, that we are world citizens, you know, and if Britain is not giving us the opportunities that we want or need, then let's move out. Let's, let's go to where, where people want us. Let's go to where the jobs are. Let's go to where people will recognize our talents. We see that all the time in the acting profession. We talk about the Idris Elbas of this world. We talk about all the black actors who have gone abroad for their talents to be recognized. They didn't become better overnight the minute they crossed the Atlantic. They were better in the UK. It's just that they, they were recognized when they crossed the Atlantic. Similarly, if we need to move somewhere, let's move. You know, we've only been here, I mean, I've, I'm a very proud, I'm very proud of being black British. I'm very proud of being a black Londoner, but that doesn't mean that I'm gonna stay in a place which doesn't recognize my talent, just as I'm sure that I haven't, I've never met him, but just as I'm sure that Idris Elba is very proud of being a black Londoner as well. You know, we, we move. Yeah. And even like going from London to Scotland, just like kind of moving around in the UK as well can also help, I guess. Yeah, I mean, we, we call ourselves black Londoners, and we're normally scared of going north of the M25. You know, we, we, we should. Britain belongs to us. And so that means that Manchester belongs to us. That means that Swansea belongs to us. Whatever, we, we are black British people, you know. We have as much right and we should move wherever we want to move. You've experienced so much at the start of your career. Can you take us on a little journey of some highlights in your career? Yep. So I would say that what has been instrumental in my career is the 
um, kindness of predominantly women who have recognized um, the need for um, championing diversity and championing um, black talent, white women, black women, you know, especially black women have been um, very good at recognizing the need of championing um, black men, you know, in a way which I don't know if black men always recognize the need to champion black women, I, I'm, I'm not sure, but black women have always been instrumental in progressing my career. So I think of the opportunities, the opportunities that I've had and with literally just one or two exceptions, it has consistently been um, women who have progressed my career. You know, and it's been a it's been a great fun career. I mean, that's journalism and working in television is one of the best jobs in the world. You get to meet people that you would never normally meet. You get to experience things that you would never normally experience, and you get to experience them in in a safe environment. Um, so, for example, you know, even doing a program about crackheads, about people on addicted to crack cocaine. You know, I'm hanging out in a, in a crack house and I'm seeing part of life that I'd never, ever normally see. Or, and it's a privilege. It's an ap absolute privilege to be able to enter different worlds, even if it's worlds where, where you're going into a crack den. You know, but it's an absolute privilege to be able to enter people's worlds and see parts of British life or other people's lives you would never normally get to see. So that's, that's fabulous. And talking to people that you would never, ever be able to talk to normally, it's an, it's an absolute privilege. I love it. It's, it's great. And on top of that, it's one of the few art forms. You know, people talk about the impoverished artist. You're getting paid. You know, you can pay your mortgage. How many artists can say that they can pay their mortgage by doing art? And we are creating art. You know, so to be able to pay your mortgage and, and do something artistic and be allowed into different worlds, it's, it's brilliant. It, I, I love it. It truly is. It's definitely a fulfilling career. Um, so you've always been proactive in leading um, diverse teams in, in the media industry. Is this something you felt compelled to do um, right from the start? Um, more or less, you know, so uh, there's... A little bit of debate as to when BBC Black Workers Group started. I some people say it started when I was a researcher. I'm pretty sure it started before then, you know. Um, so I don't actually remember. I don't think I set it up, or was one of the people. I definitely did not set it up. I I didn't think I was part of the initial group that, that set it up. Although some people say that. It wasn't set up before, but I don't think I was. I was so young that I wasn't really sure what was going on. But the idea of black people coming together um, within the BBC, the idea there were people trying to set up unsuccessfully, and maybe you know this is due to different mediums now. You know, the idea of there being a, a black journalist association. I remember a guy called Harold trying to set that up and it not quite working. And maybe if there'd been social media, it would have, you know, at the same time, you know, there were some really 
fun stuff that was going on. I remember um, the Voice newspaper used to put its paper to bed on a Friday night, I think. I can't remember if it was a Thursday or Friday night. Someone from the Voice would be able to tell you. And so they, they then used to all go to the Z bar on, which was on, uh, it wasn't on Brixton Hill. It was Acre Lane uh, in Brixton. Right, so they'd all go to the Z bar on Acre Lane on a, I think it was a Thursday. They either put it to bed on a Thursday or a Friday and they would, they'd all go to bed there. They'd all um, put it to bed there. Then they'd all go to the bar. And it was just a brilliant place for black journalists then just all to hang out. It was because it started off with just being the voice and then every black journalist in London kind of knew that that's where this critical mass of black journalists were. You know, so that's where you'd head to on a, I think, God, it's so long ago. I can't remember if it was a Thursday or Friday night. Someone from The Voice built it. But yeah, it, um, it was great. And so and you just want to hang out and they give you strength. They give you inspiration. So even just wanting to hang out was, was you know, you're, I'm 22, I'm 23. You just want to hang out with people that you want to party with. It's no more than that. It's, it's no deeper than that. It, it, eventually it becomes deeper, but... The initial reason is because you just like hanging out with friends. Mm. I guess that sense of community is always comforting as well because you're all doing the same job and somewhat yeah. going after the same goals. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so like, do you think that right now, because everyone's talking about diversity and inclusion and, and it's been such a, a big, um, I wouldn't want to say buzzword, but it's been talked about so much in the media industry and so many um, companies have said that they're investing in diversity funds or investing in schemes. Do you think that's become a buzzword of the moment, especially because at the start of the interview, you were saying, you know, um, um, diversity has not really changed since 20 odd years ago. Do you think that this is just kind of lip service in a way? I think that there's some real difficult issues that we need to tackle. And one of them is talking about racism. You know, so what has happened is, and it's been documented that the increase in discussions about diversity, there's been a directly inverse fall in talks about racism. You know, and as companies want to talk about diversity more rather than addressing racism. And so what I'm hoping is that if you look at 2020, if you look at the Black Lives Matter, if you look at even the Harry and Meghan um, interview where they're talking about um, uh, bigotry in the industry, you know, I'm hoping that people are actually going to start addressing the um, talking about the R word, talking about racism, talking about prejudice. You know, because we need to actually start having these difficult conversations rather than acting as if lack of diversity is some kind of act of nature that just has occurred by itself. Um, because the lack of diversity is because of actions that people have taken and continue to take, you know, whether consciously or, or unconsciously. Um, and whether consciously or unconsciously, those actions then um, perpetuate um, racism in a, in a toxic environment. And so if we start having those conversations, we can really start addressing the problem 
as opposed to sometimes the discussions about diversity is more about addressing the symptoms rather than actually addressing the root cause of the problem. And I'm hoping that if we look at events over the last year, we're going to start really addressing the root causes of the problem. Did you ever feel the responsibility in your career, I don't know, maybe once or a few times that you had to be the black voice in the room? Um, and do you think that um, it's fair for black journalists that are just coming into the industry now, being moved into a position of being the black voice in the room, maybe just being the only one there that might be uncomfortable with maybe a pitch or a story that's the way that a story is being told, but being at the start of the career and not being able to say, hey, you know, maybe you shouldn't say that. Um, like, it's kind of like a weird line right now. Um, what, what do you think about that? Okay, so it's, there's lots to unpack there. So um, there's been quite a few studies with regards to, to gender, less about race, but quite a few studies with regards to, to gender that women who champion other women or speak up for, for women, it jeopardize, it, it's detrimental to their career prospects. They're seeing, uh, seen as partisan. And so, um, and people think that the studies are transferable. And I, I assume that studies from just from anecdotal evidence are transferable to ethnicity. Um, so you're put in a very difficult position or people perceive that they're in a very difficult position that they are asked their opinion, but at the same time, if you are seen to champion um, or push back, especially with the studies with regard to gender, that's then seen as detrimental to your career. So you're put in a, an insidious position of um, uh, being asked your opinion, but if you have an opinion which pushes back against um, what the majority actually believe or think, that can be detrimental to your career. So that is very difficult. That is very difficult. And so I don't think there's anybody, especially a, a young journalist, but even more senior journalists that relish being put into that position, you know, because as I said, at best, it can be detrimental to your career. At, at worst, you are then, or I don't know which one is worse. I don't know which one is better. But you could be approving of some things which are really detrimental and storylines which you really don't believe in. Um, so, yeah, it's a horrible position to be put in. I don't, uh, you know, any journalist who's, any black journalist who, or is, that is put in that position, any female journalist that is put in that position, any disabled journalist has got my complete sympathy. You know, it's a, it's a horrible position to be put in. What would be your advice for new journalists coming in at this time um, and being able to pick as well what um, news organisations fit with their values as well? Because that's also a big thing. Uh, just go to whichever news organisation will actually pay you you know, is, would, would be my first piece of advice. Um, so whichever one is, is willing to, to give you a salary, go to them um, and make sure that you write stories that you're happy to have your, your name against. You know, it's, it's as simple as that. 
And if you're not happy to have your name against them, then you should be honest with yourself. We will all at some points in our career do stories which, as black people, we will do stories that we are not 100% proud of, right? That's just the reality, right? And everybody will have that in whatever line of work they're in. As black people, whatever line of work you're in, there'll be things that will happen which you will not be 100% proud of, right? I suspect it's true for everybody. You know? What we should not do, at least when we're talking amongst friends and privately, is that we, and this is the really hard part, we have to learn to live with cognitive dissonance, right? Invariably, we have tremendous difficulty living with cognitive dissonance. So doing one thing, but believing something else, right? And because we have such difficulty with co that cognitive dissonance, what we end up doing is justifying our own bad behavior, right? Even if, even if in our heart of hearts, we know that it's wrong. And what we need to do is be like, stay true to yourself. And so if you're doing this, if you're with an organization which is telling you that you shouldn't do, that you shouldn't go on a Black Lives Matter march, and you believe in your heart of hearts that you should, or if you're with, uh, if you're writing, forget news, if you're writing a drama where you want the character to be, your black character to be in a positive black community, but they want them to be in a positive white community. So to be the one black person in this, in this community, you might have to go along with that. I completely understand you have to pay the bills, right? But what you don't do is lose sight of your, your values and your vision. And you can be like, okay, right, be honest with yourself. I'm doing this because I need to pay the bills. But what I want to do is, X, you know, what I want to do is Y. Otherwise, what happens is that you become so acculturalized with the organization that as you progress, it makes no difference. It makes no difference when you finally become the series producer, the exec producer, the commissioning editor. It makes no difference because you have... Um, uh, you've taken on those values, which at the very start of your career, you knew were wrong. You know, that by the time you actually are in a position to instill different values, you no longer have those different values. And so what you need to do is by all means, do what you have to do to survive, but stay true to yourself. And the only way you can do that is by having organizations like yourself, like we are black journals, right? to be able to talk about those, to give each other support, to give each other um, strength. And also to um, talk through those issues. It's too difficult to do it by yourself. It is far too difficult to do it by yourself. You know, I need to be able to call you up and say, am I right that the story that I pitched, was it a rubbish story? Or is it that they just don't recognize that it's important for black people? 
And you could turn around and say to me, you know what? And everyone else in, you know, that I talk to in We Are Black jour Journalists say, you know what, Marcus, that actually is a rubbish story. You know, you should just let it go and be like, okay, fine. All right, fine. It's, it's, it's not racist. It's actually a rubbish story. Fine. I get it. You know, or people say, actually, you know what? That was a brilliant story. And be like, okay, fine. I recognize that it was a brilliant story, but there wasn't the time for it. And the people weren't hearing me. But we need organizations like We Are Back Journalists. You need other support groups. You need um, other groups to validate your editorial opinion, but also to make sure that your editorial ego is kept in check. Otherwise, you end up thinking that every slight, every rejection is, is because the person was racist and they just didn't understand your brilliant editorial vision. And, you know, you're a young black journalist. You will have, you will make mistakes. Your editorial vision is not going to be fantastic all the time. So you need organizations like, so what I would say, to go back to your question, what I would say to um, any young black journalist is join whatever organization, join whatever company is paying the bills, but make sure at the same time you join We Are Black Journalists. Make sure you join race beat make sure you join other groups so that you have the support structure um and the friendship to survive in whatever organization you're in